Hey you, yes you, thanks for tuning in to the Healthy, Wild and Free podcast. My name is David Benjamin, I'm your host and the founder of HealthyWildAndFree.com. If you're like me, you understand that health, the mind, body, spirit, heart connection, and living a green, eco-friendly, sustainable lifestyle are some of the most valuable and life-enhancing lessons that we can learn and pass on to our children to live happy and abundant lives. That's why this podcast was created, to help you grow in these areas. If you aren't already subscribed to the newsletter, go to HealthyWildAndFree.com, click the box at the top right-hand corner to get a free copy of our latest ebook, and you will be subscribed to be notified about future podcasts. Thanks for subscribing and tuning in. Enjoy. Hello, podcast listeners. This is David Benjamin, your host of the Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast. Today we have on the show with us Dr. Joel Kahn. He's a graduate from the University of Michigan School of Medicine and a board-certified cardiologist. He's the director of cardiac wellness at Michigan Healthcare Professionals and serves as a clinical professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine. He has authored over 150 medical studies and now writes a weekly health blog at mindbodygreen.com. And he is the holistic heart doc for Reader's Digest magazine. And his first book, the Holistic Heart Book is set to be released this January of 2014 by Reader's Digest Press. You can learn more about Dr. Joe Kahn at Dr. J. Kahn, and that's K-A-H-N dot com. I'm going to bring him on the call right now. Dr. Kahn, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? Excellent. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us here today. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk health all the time. Awesome. The first question I have for you, and this is kind of a, a question I have for all guests, is how did you kind of initially get into the holistic approach to health as opposed to the traditional allopathic approach? Well, probably been a bit of a rebel at heart, you know, for a long time, and it takes a little of that to question, to wonder, not to mind, to be outside the middle of the circle wore cowboy boots all the way through training, you know, just didn't mind being a little bit odd, and I don't mean that in any other than a good way for anybody listening because it's, as they say, swimming upstream is a good thing once in a while. You know, in my own life, I made a decision long ago to become vegetarian for a variety of reasons, much of which were health and new scientific data, and then just along the path of life, because I'm not the youngest uh, probably one on, the, on listening in right now, but just started practicing yoga, some exposure meditation. It all came to fruition about three years ago when I decided to get formally trained, and there's one program in the country that has sort of a holistic heart training, but actually through a university for, for already practicing physicians. And it just led me to read you know books and YouTubes and videos and visit centers and talk to other people and just really expanded my scope. And then as I applied it, it was just so much fun to treat people with all the usual things if they needed, but have available so many tools that they responded to and felt so much better with. Mm-hmm. So what What are some of the kind of biggest mistakes that people make, uh, mostly in America, because most of the listeners are from America, but really in general, uh, as far as heart health and cardiovascular health is concerned today? Well, you know, there's probably two, and it's society, and it's hard to avoid them, but one is, you know, eating shouldn't be such a topic of discussion. I mean, animals uh, eat, there's not blogs and blogs and blogs to describe what's the best diet for a given animal, um, but yet it's been thrust upon us as dramatic change in our food source in the last 50 years, and it's having serious health consequences. So now... Sadly, we're forced to be food scientists and become educated for our own health, and that's one aspect. The other was with convenience built into our lives everywhere in terms of movement, um, the number of calories, the number of uh, activities we do a day has diminished. So putting more movement in our life would be you know, the other major message. What, as far as diet is concerned and, and food-related choices, uh, what what kind of uh, research and what kind of information uh, kind of prompted you to? Are you a vegan or a vegetarian? I didn't. I'm kind of. Yeah, I I do eat what would be described as a vegan diet. Yeah, no cheese, no eggs, no dairy, and obviously okay. no animal. Um, okay. 
You know, what prompted me to move down that road, I grew up keeping kosher dietary laws as a teenager. So, there were, I mean, it was helpful. There were always things I didn't eat. I mean, my mind had to turn on before my hand reached for something. And, you know, uh, that evolved with moving to college and becoming a vegetarian because that actually was the easiest way to observe Jewish dietary laws. But then science started coming out. I finished cardiology training in 1990, and during the 1980s, um, John Robbins, who's not a physician but is a very prolific author, started writing about the whole spectrum of reasons to consider vegetarian life. And it usually is really a lifestyle, and that included not only health but also environmental and animal rights issues, and those were books that I read in the 80s and got very educated and excited about the advantage. And then about 1990, as I said, I finished cardiology training and went into practice back here in Michigan, and that year is the year that Dr. Dean Ornish in California, a cardiologist who just had a vision bigger than even to this day most anybody, uh, published a major trial that people with very severe heart blockage could uh, actually have their blockages start to reverse by adopting a nearly vegan diet. He did permit a little non-fat dairy and a bit of egg white, uh, along with meditation, body imagery, walking program, socialization. So I had just spent a year training how to become one of the best in the world on putting in balloons and stents. And here's an article in one of the most prestigious medical journals that says you can achieve some of that with just changing what you do with your fork and your shopping list and your pantry. And I was very impressed. That that data has held up to this day, 20-plus um, years later, as you know, really solid science that can be achieved by anybody who wants to educate and make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So as far as the, like you talked about, you mentioned the, uh, the kind of being a scientist within your own food, what are some of the kind of biggest uh, I guess offenders of uh, that we may not be aware of that you kind of see regularly that we can definitely be more aware of. Yeah, you know the low-hanging fruit, the easiest is what clearly is recognized, but a little bit hard to avoid, which is the very high content of sugar, fat, and salt, and they, those three almost always go together in processed food. So whether it's in a drive-through fast food restaurant, gas station kind of place, unfortunately even hospital vending machines, cafeterias, the last place you should see food that is, uh, you know, modified from uh, kind of farmer's origins. But the excess of sugar, salt, and fat, and, you know, some of these like trans fats that didn't really exist much outside of a few food sources until about 30 years ago, the, you know, we're eating about three to 400 calories a day more than on average about 30 years ago and much more saturated fat, much more sugar, um, much more salt, and it's taking a consequence. It's driving the diabetic rate up, our waistline up, blood pressure up, and all the things that follow, cardiovascular disease, risk of cancer. So, you know, as easy as it is to go through a drive through and feed a family of four or five, you know, for $12 in a, in a bag full of artificial food that's packaged in plastics, which is probably an additional risk, um, recognizing that such a uh, unhealthy approach and uh, going back to, frankly, somewhat more difficult habits of going to the grocery store and the produce store two, three times a week, filling our pantry with, you know, fresh food, our refrigerator with fresh food, big bowls of soups and salads and stews and casseroles and slow cooking and, and making the kitchen kind of come alive again. But that's a challenge. People are time-strapped. Uh, but if you're looking for optimal health, you've got to take, you know, your food budget under control and, and not leave it to chemists and scientists that are working for big food that really clearly don't give uh, a hoot about the general health of the Western society. Right. As far as burning calories are concerned, I've heard different kind of opinions on this, and I'd love to hear your opinion on uh, what kind of cardiovascular activities are beneficial for the cardiovascular system and the heart. Uh, I've heard that, you know, uh, running, long-distance running is uh, shrinks the heart and the lungs over time, so it actually makes them more efficient, but it but it weakens them to some degree. And then I've heard that high-intensity uh, kind of training is better along with, you know, walking and high-intensity training. So what is what is your kind of take on that, and what do you recommend from a cardiovascular perspective? Yeah, you know, I've studied that. I 
have to advise my patients on that. I've led a cardiac rehabilitation program at one of the largest hospitals in America, so that's what we do there is exercise heart patients. And there's many roads. I mean, they all start with don't sit, and um, you know, that's the bottom line. Uh, the number of hours a day you sit, whether because you're not well or because your job requires it. Um, for example, the classic study was in England, double-decker buses, there were two employees in every double-decker bus. One employee's job was to get the tickets, so that person had to go up and down the stairs many times a day to get the tickets. The second person drove the bus. In follow-up of the risk for cardiovascular disease, there was a tremendous difference, even though usually socioeconomically and diet-wise and many other ways, those two people had uh, similar backgrounds. Simply moving during the day as much as possible made a major difference. It's an interesting study. It was large numbers with many years of follow-up. It's also been shown recently you might go to the gym and get yourself a good workout for 45 minutes, but if your job requires you to sit all day long, you actually don't see as much benefit compared to similar people that exercise but have jobs that require them to move around. So first step is building movement, and that's the simple steps of parking your car farther, taking the steps, doing a phone call like we're doing now, and I'm standing and moving around. I'm kind of like tiger in a cage pacing when I go to lectures and meetings. If appropriate, I'm going to be standing and pacing. Uh, standing desks, treadmill desks are a little bit beyond most people's uh, means, but they're an option. Um, and then in terms of actual exercise, many roads to enjoyment. Well, you mentioned, and there is some very provocative data in the last maybe five to seven years, is that the ultra, ultra athletes, you hear of somebody who's done four Ironmans or 12 marathons or can run 70 miles, you normally would think, man, that person is immune from cardiovascular disease. They are in ultra shape, and they do certainly enjoy some benefits. They have uh, body weights and cholesterols and blood pressures lower than the average person. But strangely, at the end of a long distance, marathon or greater distance, triathlon kind of thing, uh, in many people, maybe more than 50%, if you do sophisticated heart testing in the blood and other ways, there are damages that are occurring to the heart from ultra, ultra exercise. Um, not in everybody, but in enough people that it has been reproduced by many centers around the world. Uh, my own hospital has done some of those studies. And then if you look longer out, there may be actually a little spike in heart disease for people who've done 15 marathons or all the rest, um, that those kind of acute stress on the heart from a single ultra-distance event over time can lead to some chronic changes. Now, uh, nobody's really finding these people are, are dying less frequently. A, a recent study said some of these ultra-people still have a very good lifespan, but they may be getting scarring in their heart. Um, the rate of irregular heartbeats called fibrillation may be four to five times higher than people who participate over and over and over again. So it's a controversial topic. Runners are really uh, hooked on their long-distance uh, journeys uh, and other athletes of that type, and some of them are very, very good friends of mine. Um, but the data is the data, and there seems to be a sweet spot to kind of conclude your question that uh, too little um, and no intensity. I mean, walking is a wonderful activity as a baseline, but if you're really looking for fitness, yes, high-intensity interval training, uh, the advantage is it sometimes can shorten up your workout and people that have time scrunch schedules maybe can get a half an hour, 20 minutes of a very intense workout in with a little bit rest phase in between, mixing some weight training with some cardio. And then, you know, and then if you can get a little longer session in uh, once in a while, that's good too. But a big fan of yoga is kind of a mind-body, weight-bearing cardio activity. That's another nice one. Mm -hmm. Is there any research on yoga's effects on the heart and cardiovascular system? There is, and... That which has been done has been good. Yo regular yoga practice doesn't have to be the super hot room intense. On average, lowers blood pressure. On average, improves something called heart rate variability, which is what happens to your heart rate when you breathe in and out deeply. And the more it varies, the healthier. And it, yoga tends to improve that. I mentioned that ultra-marathon runners have a spike in atrial fibrillation. The opposite is yoga practitioners have decreased atrial fibrillation. These are research studies and such. So, um, and, and then there's the mind benefits of kind of clearing the mind and um, reducing stress, which are a big deal because stress is so much the reason that we grab for the unhealthy food or the unhealthy drink or cigarette and such. So, 
Mm-hmm. Um, a good sure. database for yoga. A wonderful book called Yoga is Medicine by a physician published about five years ago that kind of really makes the case. Very cool. So as far as uh, I think some people, so that's a great understanding of, of exercise and movement and that kind of thing, and just, just moving in general is definitely going to be better than, than being still. But as far as uh, kind of balance is concerned, it's kind of interesting because at one point in my life uh, I had heart palpitations and uh, it was, I, was only, I think I was only 19 or 20 years old at the time. So I was, I was afraid because I was like, you know, what is, <laughs> this shouldn't be happening. I'm young. You know, I, I thought I was healthy even though I wasn't eating that healthy. And, uh, you know, I didn't really, I understood what health would look like and I understood what path to kind of take, but I was choosing kind of not to. Um, but for someone that has an underactive heart, what kind of uh, tools or, or applications or kind of measures would you recommend to them in order to kind of uh, bring up the energy of their heart and cardiovascular system to perform at a more optimal level? Yeah. Um, you need sleep. You need sleep for many functions in the body, but one is cardiac. We've recognized it more in the last 10 years scientifically than before. We've recognized more in the last 10 years that Habits at bedtime, bright lights, iPad lights, iPhone lights, and all the rest do stimulate the brain, shut off melatonin, and you don't sleep. So getting habits of avoiding bright lights and avoiding uh, electronic devices before you sleep may help you sleep. During sleep, hopefully about seven hours, we recharge, and not just in a statement, you rebuild vitamin levels that were depleted during the day. You rebuild antioxidant levels. You repair DNA that got injured during the day from toxins or sunlight or stress or uh, poor food choices. So sleep is essential, and um, it will undoubtedly lead to better performance in your athletics. Um, You know, a diet low in processed foods and junk and higher in whole foods and plant-based. Many, many athletes believe they perform better when they go to a a largely or ultimate plant-based diet. Uh, Rich Roll comes to mind, the ultra, ultra athlete, uh, Scott Jurek, Arnstein, a marathoner, who uh, praised how much better they did once they got rid of processed food and meat. Um, There are some supplements, um, unproven, but so many people respond and say they feel better, coenzyme Q10, um, Careful use of uh, creatine may be reasonable and not harmful. Um, you know, but really, if you really look at the literature, show me what supplements, vitamins, um, absolutely will improve my marathon performance. And I've been through that literature. You'll find two that say coenzyme Q10 is helpful. You'll find two that say it isn't. You'll find three that say vitamin C is helpful, and you'll find four that say it isn't. So in general, it, you know, you want to do this through healthy food, organic food. Stay away from pesticides and chemicals that do poison important enzymes in our body as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Are there any specific kind of nutrients that you see as a deficiency or issues that would cause uh, an underactive heart, causing heart palpitations? Well, probably the most helpful treatment, it, it, there are estimates that 70 to 80% of Americans are low on magnesium. Magnesium can be measured in the blood, but a very tiny fraction of all the magnesium in the body is in the blood. So even if your blood level is okay, most magnesium is in your bones and inside your cells where it's not easy to measure. Um, 70 to 80% of Americans are low. Magnesium comes from chocolate, coffee, nuts, seeds, greens. So again, we're kind of getting to the healthier, we're not talking garbage chocolate, healthier mm-hmm. food sources. But it's very reasonable to take some supplemental magnesium, you know, a vitamin. Um, they're very useful for palpitations. It's always my go-to. It's amazing how many times people come back and say, since you put me on 400 or 500 milligrams of magnesium a day, palpitations are better or gone. But they also say, my migraines are better. I'm pooping better. Uh, I don't feel as stressed. I sleep better. If you take magnesium before bedtime, it can have a nice calming effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's at that point in my life, magnesium and just walking uh, more was uh, definitely that helped me a lot, and they went away just from that. Uh, on the on the you, know, you, you want to check, you know, a cardiologist as I am mm-hmm. trained is going to check right. thyroid blood tests, potassium blood tests, might do an echocardiogram of your heart to make sure valves are good. So those would be you know a more complete evaluation. That'd be pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
On the converse side of things, uh, as far as an overactive heart, uh, faster heart rate, uh, higher blood pressure, and I'll just tell you a quick story. Actually, I've been working out as of late, and I've really been kind of pushing the intensity of my workouts. And about a week ago, my heart rate started kind of speeding up. I woke up with a faster heart rate, and I was like, this is weird because, you know, at one point I had slower heart and a kind of a weaker heart, and now it feels like my heart's working too hard. Um, so I, I would imagine, obviously, overworking your body uh, can affect your heart in a negative way. But are there some differences beyond um, the, the diet-related differences that would cause the, the heart to kind of race faster and higher blood pressure, kind of out of the blue, even if you're healthy? You know, the or the obvious ones would be Red Bull, AMP, you know, caffeine. Uh, in general, there's nothing wrong with coffee and tea. In fact... They're proven to be some of the, you know, certainly green tea, black tea, some of the healthiest substances to have in your diet on a regular basis for uh, heart, cholesterol, and cancer prevention. But some people are sensitive, so um, no reason to drink energy drinks. They're not healthy. Um, they're mm-hmm. not very pure. Now, beyond that, I don't know that I'd identify a food group that would probably drive the heart rate up. I'd be, you know, being dehydrated, which is another common situation that people uh, don't drink enough during the day, and I'm a big fan of filtered water, whether it's reverse osmosis or spring water or whatever. We've got a lot of toxins in our world nowadays, and paying a few more dollars to make sure you're getting most of your sources in your body as pure as possible is sensical to me. So, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, getting enough sleep. If you short change, if you're shooting for seven hours sleep at night, but due to a variety of circumstances, you only got four and a half or five, and you're planning a big workout that day, very often you're resting heart rates eight, ten beats higher than average, and you're going to poop out quicker. And as I said, it probably relates to inadequate time to repair and restore during the night. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. As far as vegan heart health is concerned, uh, I've, I'm, mo- I'm mostly, for the most part, vegan with my diet. Actually, I probably went about a month or two months. Well, it's probably been two months, no meat. And then I had a little bit of cheese. And then yesterday, because my heart rate has been elevated, uh, I had a few eggs just because I think I may have a vitamin D deficiency, uh, which is a you know a catalyst for uh, calcium and phosphorus absorption. So can you talk a bit about how, uh, how you get things like vitamin D or uh, zinc, phosphorus, things like that, um, in your diet as a vegan that uh, people typically get through kind of animal protein sources? Yeah, well, the only reliable vegetarian source of vitamin D are mushrooms, and it doesn't matter what kind. You can buy the inexpensive white bell cap mushrooms. You can get shiitake and uh, uh, all the other exotic ones. Um, and so eating mushrooms, uh, there's many reasons to eat mushrooms. They're big immune boosters. There's some amazing data on women who have had breast cancer that regularly simple, cheap mushrooms have uh, much lower recurrence rates, probably due to boosting up the immune system. So that, that's where you get it. It's mm-hmm. kind of hard to judge vitamin D if you don't get a blood test. So I encourage right. people to find out what your level is. And if you're okay, which is rare, you know, you're doing fine. If you're low, you might eat more mushrooms. There are now vegan vitamin D capsules you can buy. Yeah, most people are buying other, uh, the other more common source of vitamin D, vitamin D3 is not vegan if it bothers a person because it comes from lanolin, which comes from sheep. But either way, it's generally a feeling getting your vitamin D regulated and uh, out of the dumps is a good health move. It's not necessarily agreed upon by everybody, but I do that. I check and correct in my patients' vitamin D levels. Um, the The other substances you mentioned, I don't specifically look to augment zinc, Phosphorus, I mean, I think it's the rainbow diet and a variety of food sources from fruits and vegetables and grains and legumes. And, um, and you know, you can get every amino acid you need uh, from a vegetarian or vegan diet. You don't need to supplement. You know, B12, I've written an article on that uh, blog site you mentioned, Mind Body Green. Um, B12 is almost mandatory for a strict vegan because, you know, animals don't make B12, humans don't make B12, but... The dirt that animals eat is rich in B12, and in the process of their being prepared, there's still B12 in the food you eat, but it's not actually from the cow's uh, manufacturing system. It's from 
remnants of the environment that the cow lived in. We're so clean and wash our hands and take showers, we uh, get all the vitamin B12 uh, that might be in our environment off of us before it gets absorbed. Um, so you need to do that. But in general, many people should be taking B12 anyways. It's another one of the vitamins that uh, memory and nerve function is often... I see patients all the time that are very far from vegan and are very low in B12 for a variety of reasons. So it's not distinct for vegans. There is a, um amino acid called taurine. T-A-U-R-I-N-E It's the most common amino acid in muscles. It does not exist in vegetables and fruit. So if you measure urine or blood levels of taurine in vegans, not a standard thing to do, but something that can be done, uh, if you do do that, um, you will find them low, much more common, and it's completely unproven, but I often do add taurine, 500 milligrams, 1,000 milligrams, to the supplement of a vegan, including me, I take it. Whether uh, Another one is carnitine, a amino acid that's very important in fat metabolism, uh, energy production in muscles, um, much more common and much higher concentrations in fish and beef. It exists in fruits and vegetables, but at much lower concentrations. There's not really a carnitine deficiency syndrome that's known, but a vegan might think about it, particularly an athletic vegan. Uh, to consider mm-hmm. carnitine supplementation, and that's a very common uh, vitamin to find. Mm-hmm. Are you are you a raw vegan, or are you do you do something? Uh, as well? Not exclusively, you know. Okay. Uh, yeah, not exclusively. Yeah. Is, is there a reason for that? Maybe the Michigan winners, or what? <laughs> um, no, just uh, probably haven't been completely trained on it. I mean, you know, salads, the fruit and vegetables are all raw, but uh, our kitchen we dehydrate, but. Um, don't do a ton of uh, you know kind of raw preparation. Mm-hmm. I, as, I have a son. I have a son who spent ten weeks at the Hippocrates Health Institute with Dr. Brian Clements. So uh, he's uh, added a lot of raw knowledge to the house, which has been fun. Very cool. As far as the nervous system is concerned, how does the nervous system play a role in in heart and cardiovascular health? And like you mentioned, B12. Uh, what else can we kind of do to relax the nervous system and improve that for our health? Well, there's a number of strategies, and I've been uh, reading a lot on this, and you know, they're kind of falling into the mind-body realm. Um, number one, is there a reason or a benefit to kind of coordinate the heart and the mind and calm it? And the answer is yes. There's nice studies that show your memory improves when you achieve that, your immune function improves, and you fight infections better. Um, your sleep improved, blood pressure falls. Um, so there's different strategies. Of course, yoga is a way of getting there. Tai Chi is a way. Meditative practices of a variety of uh, sorts are a way. I've been very excited in the last little bit learning and practicing and using with my patients a um, actual uh, engineering concept called heartmath.org, H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H.org. It's a a company and a research institute that's been around for about 25 years. A bunch of PhDs have started doing research on how the heart influences the brain, how um, there actually is a nervous system in the heart that sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart, how there's hormones in the heart that send information to the brain and the rest of the body and other measures. And there's both like an iPhone and an iPad and a PC um, downloadable software that are free but you need to buy a little earpiece that connects the electronic device to your earlobe that clips on and monitors your heart rate. And you can learn, I've done this with some people, in two minutes they can get this feeling of coherence or synergy between their heart and their brain, um, see a calming effect. And with kind of a small amount of time daily, five to ten minutes a day, there's just a lot of published data, good data in real medical journals that that's a very simple practice that can improve your stress level and uh, your level of health and optimism. Hmm. And that heart math is the little earpiece that kind of gives you that data to take the next step or what exactly? Yeah, if you're a techie, uh, you'll like it because, I mean, some of it is that you can choose what kind of training um, appearance you want your phone or your PC to have. You can watch waterfalls and rainbows and um, all kinds of kind of touchy-feely things as you breathe in a certain pattern and think in a certain way. But you can also, if you're more the engineering type, there's graphs and there's charts and there's trends. And um, you can, if you're a little bit competitive, you can compete. You're only competing with yourself. 
But it's, um, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of gaming based on some really strong science that can improve, um, you know, kind of the mind-body axis. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know there was a nervous system actually within yeah. the heart. 40,000 huh. neurons in the heart that uh, fire up mainly uh, to the brain. So, so yoga is obviously great for that. Do you specifically practice a certain type of meditation uh, in your life that, or that you recommend? Um, a variety. I've been taught a form called heart-based meditation. But um, more recently, there's a, another very interesting physician in Tucson. Um, let me give his name justice. Um, Dharma, Dharma Singh Khalsa, K-H-A-L-S-A, Dr. Khalsa. And he is a neurologist, psychiatrist, uh, sort of trained physician in Tucson. Um, and has a form of meditation called the um, Kirtan Kriya, K-R-T-A-N Kriya, K-R-Y-A. It's a 12-minute meditation set out loud uh, with mudras, with finger motions. Um, he, again, has done some just absolutely fascinating actual scientific research and published that people that practice that 12-minute meditation on a regular basis, it, it, and the nice thing about it is it's a guided meditation. You don't have to necessarily clear your mind and struggle with the monkey mind. You have a task that you're doing. You're saying a certain word and you're moving your hands and all. But he's got some published data that it changes brain blood flow. It actually activates what's called telomerase, which is a key enzyme in anti-aging. He's got some nice data on um, memory. So I, I've been very fascinated by his work, and that's what I do most often, this 12-minute Kirtan Kriya. Very cool. I want to talk a bit about uh, statin drugs. Do you have any advice for people kind of looking to get off statin medications? I know that's something a lot of people kind of struggle with and, and don't really have a clear path. So what, what kind of practical steps can they begin taking uh, in that regard? Well, um, you know, there are new guidelines that were introduced or suggested to physicians around Thanksgiving, and they created it and are still causing a fair amount of controversy. They're not all bad, the guidelines, nor are the statin drugs, in my mind, all bad. There's um, you know, probably the most studied pharmaceuticals in the world with big-time important research uh, and over 100,000 people. Pretty hard to find that kind of data with most anything else your doctor might prescribe to you. Um, we know how they work. We've seen benefits in recurrent heart attack strokes and even survival. It took a while to find that data, but at least in the last 15 years, we do know that it's pretty uh, easy to find multiple trials that show people live longer. But who needs a statin? I mean, if you've had a heart attack, if you've had a stroke, if you've had a stent, if you've had a bypass, if you've had blockage found in your leg arteries or your brain arteries, you've got a serious disease that could shorten your lifespan that tends to get worse with time. Cholesterol is only part of the problem, of course, blood pressure, smoking, lifestyle, environmental toxins, stress, sleep. But cholesterol is part of the problem, and um, the approach always should be uh, diet, strong in plants, exercise, and all. But if cholesterol can't be controlled, statins are generally well-tolerated and generally beneficial. Do people have side effects? Absolutely. They get achy. They get arthritic. Um, there are some people who get memory issues. There are some people see a small rise in their blood sugar. Um, giving a statin with coenzyme Q10, uh, using it in combination, which is very common in Canada and Europe, but still kind of frowned upon in the United States, um, there's multiple pieces of data that suggest it's safer to use a statin if you just routinely take 100 to 200 milligrams of coenzyme Q10 daily with it. Um, if you want to get off a statin, discuss it with your medical you know, professional. Um, you can lower your cholesterol. Vegetarians and vegans have, on average, much lower cholesterols than uh, the general American population. People that exercise tend to have lower cholesterols. Um, there are some specific foods that help more than others. There's an interesting vegetarian diet uh, that Dr. David Jenkins, J-N-K-I-N-S, who's in Toronto, food scientist of great renown, he's got something called the portfolio diet, and he kind of went to the books and said, let me come up with six or seven foods that tend to lower cholesterol and make them into a diet, and then let's test it. And so they tested it in people. And um, almonds and soy and plant sterols and flax and fiber, and you know, his diet worked tremendously to lower cholesterol. So 
Uh, somebody wants to, they can look up the Portfolio Diet by Dr. Jenkins. Um, there are, um, you know, uh, nutraceuticals, vitamins and supplements that lower cholesterol. Anything with fiber from Metamucil to fruits and vegetables with fiber is going to help. Um, there's a lot of other forms of fiber that are out there. I mentioned plant sterols, lower cholesterol. Usually there's, those are things that are bought as a supplement. Green tea, uh, whether you drink it, whether you buy it in capsules, lowers cholesterol. Red yeast rice, you have to be a little careful and make sure you're getting a very high-quality form of red yeast rice can lower cholesterol. Um, vitamin E called mixed tocotrienols can lower cholesterol. Um, we can go on and on with probably five or six or seven. Berberine, which is a plant-based supplement, you're not going to find it as a, in a food store, lowers cholesterol. So probably best to either do some serious reading or um, find a holistic alternative-oriented doctor who's got some experience with this. I, I have a mentor, Dr. Mark Houston, who's a physician in Nashville, and he's got a book out, What Your Doctor Did Not Tell You About Heart Disease, I think is the exact title. And he goes through in great detail some of the supplements that can lower cholesterol without statins. Mm-hmm. So those supplements are, are typically used more because, from my understanding, if you're on statin medications, you can't eat uh, leafy greens or grapefruit, and there's kind of a list. Of no, no, no. You can, you can, you can do all that. Leafy greens oh, for really? sure. Yeah, grapefruit. There has been a bit of a warning. If your habit is to have a grapefruit a day, just don't take your statin right at that time. Um, okay. so if you really love your grapefruit, take your statin at night and eat your grapefruit in the morning or something like that. Or maybe it was vitamin K. Does that play a role? Vitamin somehow? K in green leafies. So you know those patients on Coumadin have to be a bit cautious about green leafy vegetables, and that is a bit of a problem in terms of giving them the right health message. Okay, so maybe they should look into David Jenkins' uh, formulation diet. Yeah. More. yeah. Okay, awesome. Let's talk a bit about cholesterol. I've heard, uh, you know, obviously the the issue for the most part is, is high cholesterol, HDL, LDL. Can you talk a bit about the difference between those two and the role they play and how we can kind of balance those in the body? Yeah, you know, we... When even back when I was training in medical school, which is unbelievably 30 years ago now, um, HDL was mentioned repeatedly as the protective H for happy cholesterol component. Um, there were many efforts to raise HDL. I mean, studies had shown that if you took a population, people with the higher HDL had less heart disease than people with the low HDL. So it seemed intuitive that if we found something that could raise HDL, it must be helpful. Well. The last 25 to 30 years have been rather disappointing. So there's a number of pharmaceutical drugs. There's over-the-counter things like niacin and such. And they aren't really proving to change outcome. Uh, they really don't change HDL all that much. They do raise it a bit. So we've given up a bit on that it is not a target of treatment. These newest cholesterol guidelines don't mention HDL at all. We, it's not that we don't measure it but it isn't really the point of therapy at this point until we get other modalities and get some scientific proof that it matters. The best way to affect your HDL is probably to do regular exercise and maybe a small amount of alcoholic intake, red wine in particular, can raise HDL, but it's not a point of focus. So it's all about LDL now. And the question is, and this is controversial, do we just measure the routine LDL that you can Get at your doctor's office. You can get it measured in a church, you know, a health uh, fair and such things. It's the same blood test we've been using for 40 years. And there are also advanced cholesterol blood tests where something called the LDL particle number, the particle size, apolipoprotein B levels. So many people were disappointed at, and think, at Thanksgiving that the new recommendations did not suggest or talk about these more advanced ways of measuring LDL. But... In general, uh, there's large data sets, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, that the lower your blood cholesterol, the lower your LDL. In general, the less heart disease, uh, the number one killer in America, that will result. We do need cholesterol to make steroid hormones, vitamin D, but we need very little cholesterol in our blood to make those. We don't need a cholesterol uh, blood level of 250. Um, some of the healthiest populations around the world have an average serum cholesterol of 120, 130. Their brains are working, their hormones are fine, and they're living into their 90s and 100s. Um, so the concept that lowering cholesterol is, is an evil, which is a fairly 
popular thing to talk about in some sectors nowadays is just wrong when you really study what's the average cholesterol of the healthiest people in the world, or lo at least the longest-lived people in the world. So HDL and LDL, is it is it kind of is it ignorant to define one as good and one as bad? I mean, is that kind of yeah? It is nowadays because it, it wasn't it wasn't five mm -hmm. years ago, but HDL, which was thought to only act like a vacuum cleaner and to take cholesterol out of the arteries, do exactly what you'd want to happen: reverse cholesterol transport to take it out. We now know that sometimes HDL is atherogenic. HDL can lead to uh, cholesterol deposition in arteries. It's a very complex molecule. It has many different parts and enzymes inside of it. And uh, we're just starting to get a handle on how it works, but we don't really have the right therapy. There may be simple measures like pomegranates and pomegranate juice may make your HDL more functional. Grape skins, grape seed extract may do the same thing. But um, can we absolutely say that those things uh, are impact on long-term outcome, we don't know. I, I tell my patients to eat more pomegranates, and it's a simple step. Mm -hmm. So for most people, obviously, having a, a cholesterol that's too high is probably very prominent, but have you seen patients at all that have had cholesterol being too low by any chance? Um, you know, I, I make their cholesterol too low by overshooting what dose of statin I start them on, but then you get follow-up blood work, and... Um, I believe you you know, can back off and let the cholesterol come up a little bit. All that said and done, both the statin literature, which is tens and tens of thousands of people that have been in research studies, there's no adverse outcome to driving the cholesterol down very low. I mean, it, there has not been found and it's been looked for a danger to bring the cholesterol too low. Now, you might feel uncomfortable with it. The number might look silly. Um, but it's not been shown to be harmful. There are also um, populations of people with a genetic disorder that genetically they run very low cholesterols, very low cholesterols, and they have normal lifespans and do well. So absolutely need some cholesterol in the body to make cell membranes, brain structures, steroid hormones, vitamin D, but it appears you need low levels, not high levels, that do increase the chance that your arteries are going to get involved in an atherosclerotic plaque. Mm -hmm. uh, I know cholesterol is involved in creating testosterone, correct? Right. And there's a hint of data, and I'm talking it's a shred, that mm -hmm. statins might impact sexual function. But it's the, ad, the opposite is the number one cause of sexual impairment is actually vascular problems. The blood vessels to the groin and the penis are all clogged up from American diets. So in general, statins are actually helpful because... They're one of the efforts to uh, improve arterial health. Um, but there are rare reports that people taking off a stat and their testosterone level trends up a little bit. It's very mild mm -hmm. and it's not consistent. Mm -hmm. If someone wants to take kind of a very holistic route, uh, it, obviously it can take more time and, and kind of dedication and commitment. But if someone wants to take more of a holistic route, uh, to basically mimicking the statin in a natural way, what kind of uh, advice would you give them? Well, actually, all the things we talked about maybe 10 minutes ago, red yeast rice, certain vitamin E preparations, plant sterols and all, they often disrupt cholesterol production, very similar to statins, maybe mm -hmm. not as powerfully. So you may have to use four or five supplements in low doses in combination to equal the impact of a statin. Statins are pretty darn effective at what they do. Um, but you can mimic it, um, and you can get your cholesterol down. I mean, mm -hmm. I have a practice full of people that either have chose not to take a statin or have tried four or five of them with fairly bad side effects. And we use alternative treatments, or I might use a statin one day a week, not seven days a week, with some of these alternative treatments. And we get their cholesterol in good shape. Anyway, lifestyle is the foundation. What are you eating? Where are you shopping? What are you? How often are you moving your body? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about uh, nitric oxide. It's something that's kind of fascinating to me. I, I uh, discovered this actually uh, by reading a book earlier this year uh, on erectile strength. Just you know, as a man, it's good to know these things. Um, so nitric oxide. What exactly is nitric oxide, and uh, how can we kind of use that to our advantage? 
Yeah, nitric oxide is an extremely simple molecule. It's a gas. It's produced in the lining of arteries throughout the body, the single layer of cells called the endothelium. And it's an extremely important messenger to the vessel in terms of health or illness. Uh, three physicians, I think they were all MDs, that discovered nitric oxide and its enzyme won the Nobel Prize in 1999. Um, that's how important research it was. So if you have a healthy lining to your arteries, a healthy endothelium, because your diet, your exercise, your sleep, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and all these factors, your endothelium will make a lot of nitric oxide. Um, nitric oxide, its source is actually arginine and citrulline. And uh, there are certain foods that are very high in arginine and citrulline, like arugula lettuce, like pine nuts, like watermelon, particularly the white rind of watermelon. That's actually the highest source of all, all of them, um, beets and such. So you can uh, read a little. I've written an article about this on the web uh, of eating foods that increase your arginine, increase your citrulline, lead to more nitric oxide if your endothelium is healthy. And if that all happens right, your arteries become very resistant to bad problems. Your arteries resist plaque. Your arteries resist clotting, the source of heart attacks and strokes. Your arteries resist um, going into spasm and causing blood pressure elevation. So healthy nitric oxide concentrations. And actually it also starts in the mouth. Uh, chewing healthy foods and greens and nuts and seeds um, mixes with saliva and certain enzymes in the saliva and you get a very rapid bolus of nitric oxide um, if you're eating nitrate-rich food. Not bacon, sodium nitrate as a source, but plant-based sources. Um, many people have diseased endothelium from diabetes, from smoking, and other factors we've talked about. They're not going to make as much nitric oxide. They're much more prone to a heart attack, to progressive plaque. So um, it's not the easiest thing to measure nitric oxide, Recently, it's become easier to measure how healthy the endothelium is. I have a simple test in my office using a blood pressure cuff that tells me how healthy somebody's endothelium is. Uh, it's FDA approved and inexpensive, but it's very uh, novel and brand new. I'm the only practice around here that uh, has it. But uh, it is important if you're an athlete to study and learn about nitric oxide. There's good data that your athletic performance improves with beetroot juice and beets and watercress. And these are just rich, rich sources that lead to more nitric oxide. And they're all plant-based. Mm -hmm. And beyond even athletic performance, I mean, uh, sexual dysfunction and heart health obviously play a role in this as well, right? Yes. A um, couple comments there. A clue to diseased arteries to the heart, um, maybe three or four years before chest pain or a heart attack occurs, can be sexual dysfunction. The endothelium to the sexual organs is sick, causes uh, erectile dysfunction, and the family doc or the, um, the urologist who has ever seen the patient, it isn't standard. I wish it were, should think, I wonder what this man's heart arteries are doing and send him to a cardiologist to get checked because it often gives you a three to four year kind of window uh, of what's going to come down the road. And you're right. And, you know, the drugs that are out there like Cialis and Viagra and Levitra, they all work by boosting nitric oxide and the enzyme pathway that occurs with nitric oxide. Um, there are strategies to keep your endothelium healthy. Some of them are lifestyle, like don't smoke, like avoid diabetes, like exercise, like control blood pressure, like reduce saturated fat and trans fat and eat a plant-rich diet. And there are some chemicals. The statins improve endothelial function and nitric oxide. So that's one of the benefits they have. They do have downsides. Other pharmaceutical agents, ACE inhibitors, uh, we use for blood pressure, improve endothelial function. So um, we know quite a bit about it. It's a very fascinating topic. I agree with you. Mm -hmm, definitely. Which, which plants kind of specifically beyond beet and beetroot juice are, are great for boosting nitric oxide? Um, like I said, uh, arugula, pine nuts, watermelon, beets, um, dark leafy greens in general. Uh, okay. But arugula is kind of a class to itself. I'm not sure why, but uh, in studies that are done. Um, hmm. if, if listeners want to learn more about, they could Google my name on Mind Body Green. I've written about it. And there's a physician in Washington, D.C., Michael Grieger. 
G-R-E-G-E-R, who has a website, nutritionfacts.org. He does short little YouTube videos. If you were to put in there um, erectile dysfunction foods or something, you'll come up with some really fascinating educational videos that are all free. Very cool. The question on, on the nitrates, uh, you mentioned foods with nitrates but but not from meat sources. What is the difference between the nitrates from the meat protein source as opposed to the plant-based source? On the studies I've read, um, it may be that it's the same chemical, nitrate is nitrate, but when it comes from animal sources, it's mixed with fat and saturated fat, which are in essentially all animal food sources. And somehow that combining of saturated fat with nitrates actually robs the otherwise beneficial effect you see of nitrates by bolusing the body with ultimately nitric oxide and a healthier endothelium. So it may be that it's carrying along the baggage of fat and saturated fat. That's what some research studies have shown. Gotcha. And when you're eating plant-based sources of nitrates, um, there, of course, is no saturated fat and uh, very little fat in general. Right, it gets right into the bloodstream and it's assimilated easily. Gotcha. So, as far as uh, this is just kind of something that's kind of interesting to me is uh, the arteries and 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 really the veins and the body in general is overcalcification. I know when calcium accumulates in the body, that can definitely cause issues. What are some of the different kind of tips you would have to kind of uh, clean up the excess calcium within the body? Well. Um Number one, you have to know it's there. And so over the long haul, there have been many observations of a a patient with diabetes get an x-ray of their leg because they hurt their knee, for example, and the radiologist uh, comments that the arteries in the leg can be seen to be all calcified. You know, that's happened many times. Um, uh, So you have to find it. Now we have much more sophisticated ways to find it. So there's a CAT scan that can be done um, of the arteries to the heart. The CAT scan takes about five seconds. You hold your breath and it's done, not painful, no IV. uh, And you can find out immediately and very accurately if your heart arteries are prematurely calcified. In fact, I wouldn't even call premature because they never should be calcified, even in old age, but it becomes quite common in the 70s and the 80s. Um, And that's called an ultra-fast calcium CT scan of the heart. They're quite inexpensive. Uh, Usually patient pay around the country. Insurance companies don't seem to really want us to identify heart disease early. Um, Unfortunately, so you might have to pay $100 to find out. I would not recommend this to people in their 20s or 30s, but somebody around the age of 50 or maybe a little younger, if they're a smoker or diabetic or I just saw a patient the other day who was 37 years old and his brother had a heart attack and died at age 38. Kind of exceptional. So I'm going to have him get one. But that's how you find out if your arteries are calcified. Um, And then if they are, you go through all the standard, what we call risk factors. Are you a smoker, diabetic? What's your blood pressure? What's your cholesterol? What's your diet? What's your exercise? What's your sleep like? What's your stress like? Um, Maybe we should be digging further. There's other factors in the blood that might relate to early artery calcification. Um, Of course, if you have problems with a a gland in your neck called your parathyroid, but that's quite rare, but there's something called homocysteine. It's a protein in the blood that can be measured, and if it's high, it might worsen your artery disease, lipoprotein A and others. And ultimately, to answer your question, it's been hard to show how you reverse calcification. Um, Again, going back, statin medication has been shown to do it. Um, high doses of omega-3 fish oil has been shown to do it. Actually, garlic supplements have been shown to do it. Um, there's a vitamin called vitamin K2, which can be bought as a supplement. The food sources um, for vitamin K2 are rather nasty, like aged cheese and such. But um, vitamin K2 may stop and reverse calcification. And then, of course, there's chelation. This has been a very hot topic of controversy and disdain, but uh, as of the last 12 months, there's now some published data about the effectiveness of um, chelation in terms of helping heart patients do better. Interesting. As far as the, the minerals, obviously there's, there has to be a balance of the minerals, and if there's an imbalance of, of minerals in your diet, uh, it seems like 
calcium will kind of, you know, occur in. Some people will have calcium deposits on their joints and calcium, uh, you know, they can actually see it and kind of feel that stiffness. So what are the, the kind of main uh, balanced minerals that we need in order to kind of keep that balance and flow moving? Well, there's kind of a triad of calcium, magnesium, and vitamin D that are all important for bone health. Um, and many people are, so the current mantra not accepted by all is if you're going to supplement for bone health, it should probably be a balance of all those three, some calcium, some magnesium, and some vitamin D for the best bone health. For years, women particularly were being given high doses of calcium alone, and just recently there's some data that that may, may worsen artery calcification. So the doses of calcium supplements have come down. Very often now they're calcium-magnesium supplements or calcium-magnesium vitamin D supplements. But short of that, it seems more important just the standard risks for heart disease. Smokers and diabetics, their arteries get calcified not because of a mineral imbalance, but because calcification is a pathologic reaction to injury. You know, the artery gets injured from those things, diabetes and smoking, and the calcium is just a secondary bystander that gets laid down as the artery tries to heal. Mm-hmm. As far as everything I'm doing, uh, you know, with the podcast and the Healthy Voluntary Podcast, I'm really hoping to inspire the listeners to live healthier, greener, more kind of balanced lives because I think a lot of the modern day society is very, you know, fast paced, very kind of imbalanced in, in many different ways. So is there any kind of tips within the mind, body, spirit uh, that maybe you practice in your life that you'd kind of recommend to the listener to kind of engage in in their lives? Well, you know, I'd be be knowledgeable on the source of food and water and how you're preparing it, knowledgeable about plastics and other toxins, because, you know, what you put in your body is much more critical in the last 50 years than I think it was previously, and much more potential for toxins than there was previously. Sadly, it's everywhere. Um, You know, DDT was banned in this country as a pesticide, I think, 30 years ago, and you can go take tap water out of your sink right now and probably measure some DDT still in your tap water. It's it's crazy, but it's still in the environment. Um, So one is to be, you know, be educated, not necessarily anxious and neurotic, but some simple moves. Don't microwave in plastics. Don't drink coffee out of styrofoam cups. Uh, this craziness about every bottle of water we drink out of plastic bottles and such, uh, it is probably harming our health. Uh, number two um, tips. I mean, I haven't mentioned, I'm a big fan of some data out of Japan about the health benefits of sauna. There actually are amazingly interesting data in heart patients, uh, particularly a type of dry sauna called infrared sauna, but it probably works for other sauna systems also. Uh, and maybe it's just perspiring in general, which is a source of detoxification. But I uh, have the luxury of having a sauna in my house. Prior to that, I used the one at the health club. Um, you know, there's another little aspect. Um, you know, attitude is a big difference. Optimistic people that smile and say nice things and uh, are grateful uh, seem to have better health and better longevity. And I certainly hope and try and practice that one. Um, don't mm-hmm. try to flip the bird off too much and <laughs> kind of take, take a breath and laugh more than uh, let the let the kettle boil over into you know a brood of anger. Um, right. Yeah. Very and just cool. become a student. I mean, you know, I know more now about health than I knew three years ago, and I don't know as much as I'll know in two years. And we can all get started. Uh, you know, the web is a great resource. I mentioned nutritionfacts.org. Uh, you mentioned my website. It's actually now kind of under drjoelkahn.com, dr for doctor, j-o-e-l-k-a-h-n.com, a lot of resources. Um, uh, PCRM.org, which is a uh, medical website full of information. Um, and, you know, PETA.org, is, um, you know, it's got some emotional animal rights parts, but it has a great amount of important information, too. So, I mean, many, many other resources. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Do you have a specific date that your book will be launched? I think it's like four weeks from right now. It'll be mid-January. It's published by Reader's Digest, the holistic heart book. Uh, the first few months it has to be bought through Reader's Digest. Anybody can, uh, and then it'll be out and released to Amazon and such. But 
I think there's just there are dozens of health tips based in science that are more holistic. I mean, they're not prescription drugs. Uh, it's not anti-anything. It's just pro-health, and I think people will enjoy it. The feedback mm, has cool. been, boy, I learned, you know, many people have read it that are not from a vegan perspective, and it really said, I, you know, I'm probably not going to change overnight, but I never knew all these things you talked about. So that's good. That's what I want. Right. Right. You can make small steps in the right direction, at least. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Khan. I really appreciate it. And uh, once again, what's your website for the listeners? It's drjoelkahn.com then? Yeah, and doctor is drjoelkahn.com. Awesome. Thanks a lot for your time and have an awesome day. Have a great day. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And we'll wrap the show with that, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for tuning into the Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast. Have an amazing holiday season. Enjoy Christmas if you celebrate it. Enjoy whatever you celebrate. It doesn't really matter. Just spend time with your family. Be thankful. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye.